My name's Nick. Love to meet you if I haven't met you. Uh, I'm going to get us into God's Word here. If you could open up your Bibles, Luke chapter 3 is where we are. Uh, we're second part of um, a two-part, really, sermon um, here looking at verses 7 through 18 of chapter 3. Let me read it, pray, and then get us in. Luke 3, verse 7. He, John the Baptist, said therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruits in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And the crowds asked him, What then shall we do? And he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, uh, and we what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ, John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people. Pray with me. Oh God, we're not prone to see some of that as good news, I don't think. We don't like to hear that something's wrong with us. We don't like to hear about your wrath, about our sin, about your judgment. But it's grace on the other side of wrath. It's good news on the other side of horrible news that we're after. It's that grace, it's that good news that comes to us in Christ. Our Savior, He has saved us, not just from an enemy or some circumstance, but from God Himself in His holiness, in His righteousness, in His purity. He cannot look upon sin with favor, therefore He cannot look upon me with favor. Unless Christ comes. 
And so, Jesus, we invite you into this room. I'm always just sobered by the amount of needs, the amount of things that are present here, represented, or by these people represented here. And, and God, I we just have a, a simple Bible study through a few verses. And I'm praying you would take these these couple of loaves and just multiply it to feed your people in all the ways that you know they need it. And would you feed me? We're so happy to be in your word together this morning. God, would you just come and speak to us? It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Um, as I was reading through this again this week, it uh, impressed upon me yet again that Christianity, uh, this thing, this religion we call Christianity, um, it truly is engaged in the most serious business in all the universe. I mean, there's just no trifling. There's just no playing around with Christianity. This text will not allow us to do so. If you're going to be students of the Bible, you are going to be dropped into some radically deep and weighty, serious matters. And what I'm seeing here is that what we do with Jesus here this morning, what you, what I do with Jesus here this morning, will determine to which side of His winnowing fork we will go. Whether to the fury of His fire or the security and the bliss of His barn. And whichever way you go, it's forever. I mean, it just doesn't get any bigger than this, any more serious or sober than this. And as I was thinking about this and what you so often get in, in churches, and as I'm hearing more and more about churches in our area and things, it just, so often, right, we come into churches and the elders, leaders, pastors, they're not, dealing with these weighty, glorious, and eternal matters. They're not dealing with heaven and hell, grace and wrath, crucifixion and resurrection, repentance and faith, sin and righteousness. Consequently, I think this kind of churches, if they're even churches at all, aren't healthy. Because we can sometimes kind of take Jesus and a few Bible verses and paste them on to all sorts of worldly messages that kind of give us ten steps to a better life or make us feel good about ourselves or whatever it is, send us on into the week with a better self-esteem. Or... And you never get to the depths nor the heights of God in all of His glory. You never come to face who He really is and who you really are and what Christ has really accomplished. That's the kind of stuff that John is after in our text. Because he doesn't want us to be one of those churches that just kind of plays with the Bible and puts it on our mug. While we drink coffee, we feel good, but 
It hasn't really struck us. There's a weight to our faith and to the Word. And John's here this morning saying, do you feel it? Do you feel it? We're not playing around. That's why his words have the tone and the tenor that they do. Flee from the wrath to come, he's saying. Repent and bear fruit. Really, or else. I mean, this is threatening. This is ominous. This is hard to hear. But as we'll see, it's so what we desperately need to hear. So this is now the second part to what I began last week. I gave us four headings. Um, We've dealt with the first two, and now we're on the last two. The first two, just recalling last week, number one was the coming wrath, and that was verse 7. And then we looked at the necessary fruit in verses 8 through 9. Now, in the third and the fourth, here's what we see. Third, the right question. The right question is being asked. That's verses 10 through 14. And then finally, heading 4, the mighty Christ. That's verses 15 through 18. So I'm going to get us in here by jumping into that third heading, the right question, looking at verses 10 through 14. We left off last time with the vivid threat of verse 9 hanging in the air. I mean, there's just no other way to put it. He's talking about, hey, if you're not bearing fruit, if you're not bearing fruit, it's fire for you. This vivid threat is hanging in the air in verse 9. And some have been shaken awake. And I pray we as well are in that place. Like, whoa. Because you just can't sleep through John the Baptist's sermons. (laughs) You can reject them or accept them, but you cannot sleep through them. And some have been awakened by him and they're coming forward to ask John and and they're asking what what I think is the right question. Here's what they're saying there in verse 10. What then shall we do? I mean, we hear you, John. We hear that this is for real. That judgment is coming. That fruit is necessary. What are we supposed to do about it? I pray we've all in that room, been, in this room, been brought to that place of looking at God, seeing, coming to face His holiness and, and our desperate state and saying, what do I do about it? That's where this crowd, that's where these people are. And they ask this one question, what then shall we do? But it shows up three times. This one question shows up three times in these five verses because it's being asked by three distinct groups. We see it there in verse 10. What shall we do? Then again in verse 12. What shall we do? Then again in verse 14. What shall we do? Luke and John and God are not wanting us to miss this question here. It's going to lead us forward towards the right answer. I want to make three observations for us at this point. First, uh, this isn't going to be evident 
to you uh, in English, but it is in the Greek, and it's interesting. This question that they're asking, what shall we do, actually corresponds quite profoundly with the call of verse 8. Namely, that you bear fruits in keeping with repentance. For the word translated in verse 8, bear, bear fruits, is actually the same word translated there in verse 10 as do. So in other words, here's what we have. These guys are hearing him say, you need to bear fruits in keeping with the, uh, in keeping with repentance. And they're coming and saying, in essence, what then shall we bear? What do these fruits you're calling us to, 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 to produce look like? If we need them, show us what they look like. What then shall we bear? The second thing we need to note is the kinds of people that are coming with this question. I mentioned that there are three distinct groups that Luke mentions for us. The most neutral of, of, of the groups is probably the first, uh, where it just kind of says, these crowds, the crowds came in verse 10. Later on we see tax collectors and soldiers. Here we got the crowds. Seems like a, like a you know, generic kind of neutral group, but it's actually not. Um, we know that these are not Jewish leaders. We know that these are not the, the religious elite within Judaism. Here's how we know. Later in Luke 7, verse 30, we read this. The Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the purpose of God for themselves, not having been baptized by John. So the, the Pharisees and the lawyers are, are, are not among these crowds that are coming and asking the right question. They're, they're among the brood of vipers. That are saying, we got Abraham. We're leaders. Look at our robes. Look at our righteousness. John, you're calling us to repent? What nerve, man. Do you know how much we tithe? How much we pray? So they reject the purpose of God for them. And they turn away from the baptism of John. That means, therefore, that these crowds... If we were to talk about the nature of these groups, we start to get a sense that these crowds, they are not the elite, not the lofty, but the ordinary, the common, the lowly. And as I was thinking about this, I mean, isn't this how it is in our day, right? Isn't that this is a theme Luke's going to drive a lot, the reversal where it's the people that are high that are going to be brought low, and the people that feel so low are going to be brought up. But isn't this how it is in our day, that it's, it's often the most wealthy and, and the most worldly successful. they got the power, they got the riches. These are the ones that are, that are the least interested in a Savior. They look at us when we come and we talk to them. And they, I live on a hill in Los Garros. Do you see what I drive? Do you want to look into my bank account? Tell me, what do I need saving from? I've got it all. They reject the people with the riches, the people with the power. They don't see the need for the Savior. Instead, 
What is it? It's when God in his mercy brings man to see his, his, his desperate state. He takes some of that stuff away and you go, wow, I have nothing and I need saving. It's those kind of people. It's those kind of people who have come to the end of themselves that are grabbing a hold of the Savior's feet. Not just in John's day, here in our day. In Christ, kings will be made paupers, and paupers will be made kings. This dynamic continues, actually, as we note the next two groups that approach John. We see tax collectors in verse 12 and soldiers in verse 14. These are among the the least well-liked groups in all of Israel, particularly because of their tendencies towards abusing authority. So we're not talking about the elite coming here. We're talking about the low and the despised. These are the people that are seeing their need for change and are saying, John, what then shall we do? Now, third thing I want to note is the common denominator that runs underneath John's responses to all of them. They're coming, they're asking, what shall we bear, in essence? And each, John addresses certain temptations um, that are kind of uh, particular to, to them and then describes what the fruit of repentance might look like in their lives. What does this fruit look like for you, crowds, tax collectors, soldiers? So to the crowds, um, they're tempted to keep their possessions for themselves, And if you're thinking about the lower class or whatever, you realize they're thinking, man, I I don't have what all those guys have. I gotta keep what I got for survival. And he's saying, he's saying, whoever has two tunics, verse 11, whoever has two tunics, or, uh, kind of the, the undergarment, is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. And then the tax collectors come to him and they were tempted to overtax the people to get more for themselves. They had this kind of freedom to put this surcharge on top of Romans uh, taxes that they were requiring. So they could kind of go above and beyond profit here and just kind of take from their people, just milk, wring them out for themselves. Give me more money. And, and John looks at them and he says, verse 13, collect no more than you are authorized to do. And the soldiers come, and soldiers were tempted to use the sword and threats and things of of power and their strength to get stuff for themselves. And so John looks at them in verse 14, and he says, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. Remember, I'm looking for a common denominator here. What I'm seeing is that each group is tempted to use what they've been given by God, whether it's possessions or their professions. They're tempted to use what they've been given by God for the benefit of themselves alone. Me! And John is saying, do you want to bear fruits in keeping with repentance? Here's how you do it. Use what you've been given by God for the benefit of 
others. It's no longer about me. It starts to become about you. With my profession, with my possessions, you. In other words, the common denominator that runs underneath all this is the second great commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew twenty-two thirty-nine. Sorry, I feel like I'm caught. There it is. That's what it was. So here's, here's my question now. I already said I think that this, these, these crowds and, and tax collectors and soldiers are asking the right question. But now, I want to ask, and I'm serious, is John giving them the wrong answer? As I read this, I, 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 I was troubled, honestly, by numerous things. I'll give you just a couple. My first and probably the most significant problem was, it seems so legalistic, John. As I'm looking at his answer here, I'm going, John, what are you doing? What are you doing? Where is the gospel? I, okay, if I'm teaching Evangelism 101... I flunk John at this point. You wonder why? John, you have them right where you want them. They see their need for a Savior salvation. They're coming up. They're saying, what then shall we do? And where do you lead them, John? You lead them to works. You say, well, do this and do that and do that. And then you might make it through judgment. That's a big F. Wrong answer, John. We good evangelical Christians, we want John to respond here like Paul and Silas respond later to the Philippian jailer. This is Acts 26, or I'm sorry, Acts 16, verse 30, when the Philippian jailer asks Paul and Silas the same question, okay? He says, sirs, what must I do to be saved? We like this answer. They said, believe in the Lord Jesus (laughs) and you will be saved. Acts 16, 30 and 31. We like that. John, say that. Say, believe in Jesus and you will be saved. Why works? But interestingly, we must not miss that Paul, check this out, would later sum up his whole ministry using the very same kind of language that John uses in his sermon to the people. Paul says this in Acts 26.20 as he's giving account to King Agrippa. He says, I declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, and also to the Gentiles. Here it is. What would you declare, Paul? that they should repent and turn to God, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. So we have a problem if we don't see the gospel as leading here. 
because Paul sums up his whole ministry as, I am exhorting Jew, Gentile, everywhere I go, perform deeds in keeping with your repentance. And he sees no contradiction between that, the fruit, and believe in his name and you'll be saved. Faith. We always want to go there. And we look at John and we go, legalism. No, I don't think so. There's something more going on here. There are not two different ways to be saved. What we actually see, this faith and fruits that show up in Paul, there are actually two aspects of the one salvation that is in Jesus Christ. Genuine repentance and faith in Christ will lead to the full experience of forgiveness and the freedom of a new nature which will bear kind of a a harvest of good fruits. Faith and fruits are connected. You see it clearly in those texts I quoted from Paul. Let me show you that even with John, it's right there. Because we've got to recognize Luke is not done. Luke is not done presenting John's message to us at verse 14. Okay, though it begins with kind of, here's what you need to do, works kind of fruit kind of stuff. It's not where he leaves us. He takes us into verses 15 through 17 and shows us that though John begins with fruits, he grounds these fruits ultimately in faith. Faith. We'll look at closer at those verses later, but the essence of his message there is this. Don't look to me. Don't look to me. Look to him. You want these kind of fruits in your life? I'm not the Christ who's going to bring this about. Look to the one who's going to baptize you with the Spirit and fire. Change you from the inside out. Change the tree. Change the fruits. So he goes about it backwards in a way that we're not so comfortable with, but he gets there nonetheless. The fruits are grounded in faith. This is why when Luke is finally done presenting John's message to us, he sums it up this way in verse 18. So with many other exhortations, he preached what? Good news to the people. John is not preaching law. He's not preaching some sort of legalistic climb your way up to God to get justified. He is preaching the gospel here. Gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Now, what he is doing, though, by leading with fruit, while he's not divorcing the production of fruit from the vital union um, that we have by faith in Christ, he's not divorcing that. He is, by leading with fruit, he is highlighting the utter necessity of it. He is, and Jesus will do the same thing. He is saying, if you don't have fruit, judgment day will not go well for you. But it's not because we're justified by our works. It's because if you truly know the Savior, if you truly come into relation with Him, you will start to look more and more like Him. And if you don't start to look more and more like Him, chances are you never knew Him. 
And what looks more like Jesus than love for neighbor? The one who came to lay his life down for us. We know his love in that way. We start to lay our lives down for those around us, whether they're in the neighborhood or at work. Second objection to John's answer. So first, seems too legalistic. No, keep reading. Second objection. It seems too ordinary. Hear, hear me on this. Hear me on this. Because I actually think there's a lot of encouragement for the saints in this. His, his, what he kind of calls these guys to almost seems too common and small and mundane and ordinary to be the kind of stuff that, that, that gets you through fire. <laughs> They're saying, God, God, he's saying, God's wrath is coming. Judgment is coming. And they're going, what do we do? I'm thinking, lay it out, John. Give him something big. I mean, this has got to be significant. And he says, share your clothes and your food. and Work with dignity and integrity. I'm thinking, that, that's the effect of coming into union with, with the Almighty Christ, with, of, of being baptized in His Spirit. That's what the fire looks like as it comes out through me. It's just here's some, here's a, my leftover cookie and here's a shirt that I don't need or telling the truth at work. That's the kind of fruit that that will get you through the fire of God. Is that enough? I would have thought something more extraordinary would be necessary. John is essentially calling us to what I call my toddlers to every day. Chloe? Bella? They're they're, they're doing like headlocks in the other room or something. Share your toys. Share your toys. And we hear John kind of saying this to us in this text, and we're going, John, we're adults. We got this, man. We know we're supposed to share our toys. But isn't that the big problem? We know we've been told since we were two. And yet it's so hard to do it. It's so hard to share your toys. It's incredibly difficult. Turn on the news. People are killing each other every day. Because they refuse to share their toys. It's my toy. My car, my house, whatever. Or it's yours, but I want it. Give it to me. Just toddlers doing headlocks on the floor for a Barbie doll. Marriages. Marriages break apart every day because husband and wife don't know how to share their toys. Churches split all the time because members and leaders don't know how to share their toys. This is not a toddler issue. This is a human nature issue. 
It's the same baseline self-centeredness, whether it's translated into toddler or adult context. And we're going to hell with our hands around our toys. So it seems so simple and so ordinary. Give some clothes, give some food, work with dignity instead of taking advantage of others. So ordinary, and yet it's so extraordinary. That is the miracle. It requires a miracle from Almighty God for adults even to share their toys. This, I think, is where Paul is going with the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 12 through 13. You know this? In chapter 12, he's talking about all these amazing things, these spectacular manifestations of the Spirit, right? These things, we th- the flashy, the big, the showy stuff, like prophecy and tongues and miracles and healings and all that kind of stuff. We think that's some legitimate fruit. That's going to, I mean, that's going to go far on Judgment Day. That's what the Spirit looks like. And John comes out of that, or I'm sorry, Paul comes out of that discussion at the end of chapter 12. And what does he say in verse 31? I will show you a still more excellent way. A way more excellent than all the spectacular manifestations of the Spirit. And what is that more excellent way? As you keep reading in 1 Corinthians 13, that's quoted in every you know, wedding ceremony and probably lived out in hardly any marriages. It's 1 Corinthians 13. It's love. It's love. The more excellent way is something as common and ordinary as love. Patience, not snapping at, at your spouse, at your employer. Kindness, not being jealous. All these things. Share your toys. We've been told since we were two. That is crazier. That is more miraculous than tongues and prophecy and all this other stuff. I heard one scholar quoted as saying, everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to do the dishes. <laughs> Let's just get right to the heart of it. Everyone wants to change the world, but no one wants to do the dishes. Give me the big stuff. I'm ready to do it. But don't ask me to do the little stuff. And John is saying, Jesus will say, God is saying, doing the dishes changes the world. That's how you change the world. Your redemption works out by the kitchen sink. There is a battle going on in those moments. Satan is on you in those moments. The Spirit is on you in those moments. And miracles come out of a, of a child of God in those moments. You do the ordinary stuff. It's miraculous. 
currently by my sink, there are there's a pile of dirty dishes. I don't know what that means exactly. <laughs> Whether my redemption is being worked out or not. I think it means I have a sick wife and I had to preach this morning. <laughs> but isn't this awesome for those of you who feel like we can't do anything meaningful for God? Because your lives are tied down with kids or work or whatever. You ever felt that way? Like, oh, I, I would bear fruit for God if I could. I wish I could do some significant kingdom work for God. I would if I could. But I got work. I'm stuck in the office like 50 hours a week. I got all these young kids and I got to feed and all this sort of stuff. What John is saying here is, you want to bear fruit that makes it through the fire? That, 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 that you, you glean the rewards from in heaven? You want to do something significant with your life? <laughs> Say hi to your neighbor. I can do that. Now this is, this has a double edge to it because it's encouraging in one sense. It's like you can do this. It's hard in other sense. It's like wow, that means I don't have an excuse. <laughs> but anyways, say hi to your neighbor, and when you find out they're sick, bring them a meal. That's fruit. That's the fruit John's talking about. Or dress your kids in the morning. And when they have a dirty diaper, wipe their bottoms. That's the kind of fruit John is talking about. Ordinary, share your toys kind of stuff. Or when you go to work, you go to the office where you spend all your time, you're thinking, I can't do anything for Jesus. Yes, you can. Don't exalt yourself over. Don't be vying for position and, and, and putting yourself above others and, and, and using them to try to serve yourself. Work with dignity and, and use your authority, whatever you've been given, to bless. And there's fruit hanging on the tree at that point that will make it through eternity. Your lives, no matter where you are, because this fruit is so ordinary, you could be doing it anywhere be significant by the kitchen sink. So love in the mundane is the miraculous. Love in the ordinary is the extraordinary. I'm going to pick it up here as we move into the fourth heading. The Mighty Christ, verses 15 to 18. The crowds hearing the authority and the passion with which John speaks. They start to talk amongst themselves, okay? They start to talk, and and it's good stuff. We're reading in verse 15. Here's what they say. As the people were in expectation, and all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. Let's stop there. They're all going, whoa, this guy speaks with power. This guy's awesome. Look at him. He, he, he's wearing camel's hair and he eats bugs. We ought to listen to this guy. He might be the Christ. And you, got, you have to realize the temptation that would be here for any of us in these moments. I mean, this is every preacher's dream to gain a following. 
right? To start making an impact. And, and, and isn't this what you want with your work or your ministry, whatever it is? People start to admire. People start to talk. Whoa, he's got the anointing. Whoa, we want to follow him. Whoa, this is good stuff here. He might be the Christ. And these words kind of slither towards John like a snake, but he will have none of it. Just puts his heel on it, right? There in verse 16. He responds, Get behind me, Satan. In other words. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. In other words, I've not forgotten my purpose. I exist to point to Him. I'm not even worthy to be His slave. That's the meaning of untie the strap of His sandal. That's slave work. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy for slave work. You think I'm great? Let's talk about Him. I exist to point to Him. Don't get distracted with me when the Christ is now here. Oh, for more of this kind of saint in the church of God. Not me. Him. Here's why John is so jealous that we see not him this morning, but Jesus. There in verse 16 again, let me read it to you. Here's the distinction. Here's why. Don't look to me, look to him. Why, John? I baptize you with water. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Don't look to me. I got nothing to give you but water on the outside. You look to Him. He's the one who gives you the Holy Spirit fire inside. Now, I want to focus our attention as we close on that word fire. The Holy Spirit and fire. While there is some confusion as to how we should understand this fire, I think it provides for us a key that further unlocks our discussion at hand. There are some who see John as referring to two separate baptisms here by Jesus. Okay? There's kind of a a baptism of blessing and a baptism of destruction. Both are being administered by this Christ. So, so for the baptism of blessing, they would get the Holy Spirit. But the destruction people, they'll get His fire. There's two baptisms here. One's good, one's bad. Holy Spirit, fire. This interpretation has the immediate context to support it. If you look at verses 9 and 17, those are fires you don't want to be a part of, right? The fire that consumes the tree. The fire that consumes the the chaff. You don't want to be a part of that fire. So fire in the immediate context does seem negative. And so maybe it's true. Jesus is going to baptize some with the Holy Spirit and others with fire. But, but I think there's a second interpretation that has a lot more going for it. And it's where I'm going to camp out with us. And that is 
seeing only one baptism here referred to by John. And it's just kind of two different ways of coming at the same positive reality. There is a baptism for believers that's coming, and it's a Holy Spirit and fire. Two different ways of coming at the same good reality. So what this means is that the fires of destruction that consume those in verses 9 and 17 become here in verse 16 for those who receive the Christ, fires not of destruction, but of blessing. Of blessing. Here's, I'm going to show you this idea in in the text that kind of stand behind Luke. Just listen here. I don't have time to to, uh, have you turn and everything, but just listen. Read you some texts in Malachi. This is Malachi 3, 1 through 5. Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. Who's this messenger? We know now it's John the Baptist. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Who's this Lord that's coming to his temple? We know now in Luke, it's Jesus. I've got a messenger. I've got Jesus coming. And he starts talking about fire at this point. He's prophetically pointing us to what's going to come in Luke's gospel with Jesus and John. Here's verse 2. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver. And he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver. And they will bring an offering and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Did you hear that? He will be like a fire. He's going to refine some. And they're going to bring in righteousness. They're going to bring in offerings. And they're going to be acceptable to God. And the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. But fire's blessing for some. Here comes the judgment. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. Verse 5. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and the fatherless. They don't show neighborly love. Against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord. The Messiah, therefore, is bringing... I wonder if you saw it. A fire that will consume some, verse 5, but will refine others, verses 2 through 4. Their offerings, uh, the offerings of these others, will, 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 will then be pleasing to the Lord. In other words, there will finally be good fruit on the tree. So, same fire, two different results. Destruction or refinement and the production of fruit. The same thing shows up. Malachi 4, 1 through 2. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. Hear that? Fire is coming, an oven. Judgment, destruction. 
The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. It's even tree imagery. Verse 2, But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. I wonder if you caught it again. The same fire is coming. But for some, it will be like a burning oven. For others, it will be like a morning sun. For some, this fire will be their destruction. For others, this fire will be their healing. In other words, as the sun aids the tree in its production of fruit, so the Christ is going to baptize you with the Spirit and fire that you might bear good fruit for Him. He's going to heal you. He's going to heal me. That's what His Spirit is going to do. Start bearing fruit for Him. Same fire. Same fire, but two different effects. Two different groups of people. You're either in verses 9 through 17 of Luke 3, or you're in verse 16 of Luke 3. The fire either destroys or it blesses. It either consumes or it refines. But what makes the difference? How do you get from one fire, the fire that destroys, to the fire that blesses? The answer is... Come to Christ. That's the difference. In verse 16, it's this fire that is coming to those who have received the Messiah. Those who have laid hold of Him. Because Christ Himself, we know this, and I don't have time to go there, but in Luke 12, 49 through 50, He talks about His own baptism the baptism of His death on the cross, and He talks about it as fire that He's going to go under. It's as if He sees the fire that's coming, the fire of God's holy wrath that's coming for the world in our sin, and and He throws Himself into it for us. He throws Himself into the fire of God's wrath for us. And what this means then is that now... Now, that fire of God's holy wrath comes through Him to the world. And what you do with Jesus makes all the difference. If you reject Him, it's verse 17 for you. His winnowing fork is in His hand. This is Jesus here bringing the fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. If you reject Jesus, you reject his baptism on the cross, his taking the fire for you, and it will not go well for you. But if you accept the Messiah, if you accept the Christ, you still get fire, but the different kind. It's the fire that doesn't consume. It's the fire that refines. You get verse 16, baptizing you with the Holy Spirit and fire. And this is why, this is why when He finally does pour out the Spirit in Acts 2, what does Luke say? How does He describe it? 
When Jesus is risen after the cross, He ascends and He pours out the Spirit. There's the baptism of the Spirit upon His people. How does Luke describe it? There are tongues of fire resting on the people and the Spirit filled them. The Spirit and fire. There's an external emblem kind of uh, outside the people, this fire that's kind of displaying what's going on inside. The Spirit's coming in. People are being refined. Natures are being changed. Born again. New life. Law written there. That that fire that should have consumed us instead consumed the Messiah so that now when the fire comes to us, it doesn't consume, it refines, it makes us fruitful. You to see in that image in Acts 2 with this kind of tongues of fire resting. It's just God's commitment to you. God's commitment to you who have come to Christ. I'm cleaning you out from the inside out. We're going to get in there. We're going to do the work. We're going to refine. We're going to make the offerings of my people pleasing again to me. I'm going to do this because I'm in you. So, Do you want to bear fruit for God? Come and by faith embrace the Christ. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you God forbid that we should ever leave the cross to go try and bear fruit on our own. There was only one fruitful vine. Only one. And our call before anything else is to plug in to Him. Apart from me, you can do nothing, you say. And so, Jesus, we are those who've come to the end of ourselves. We are those who come and grab a hold of your ankles in these moments and say, please, stay true to your commitment. Refine this heart. Don't let me harden purify my motives bring forth from me fruit fruit that that not only gets me through judgment but brings glory to your name brings glory to the God of all grace it's in your name we pray amen